I'm going to talk today about a little bit about wines and spirits fraud, the scope of the market, uh, what we're seeing, what, what we've seen historically, what we're seeing now, and how we can possibly use technology to help um, fight the blight. So on these first couple slides, I want to know if you guys can tell the difference between the two bottles. If you were served one of the two of these, would you be able to tell the difference? Because one of them is counterfeit. These are, this is a coasterie ring that we actually uncovered coming out of France. It's in New York. Uh, well, the bottles are in New York, but the wines are being made in France. So can you tell the difference between any of those? The one in the middle here is counterfeit. Yes? It's not the, uh, the distance, it's the coloring and the print. So, and when we get into microscope print, that's, that's how we tell these things. So I've long held that about 20% of all wine in the world is counterfeit. Um, and that number has actually been proven to be incredibly um, uh, conservative, scaringly enough. So it's a, you know, the, the scope of this problem is huge for wine. It's even bigger for spirits. Um, about $5 billion of the secondary market wine um, sold every year is counterfeit, but about $50 billion of spirits are counterfeit. Um, we're finding more and more issues coming out of conflict zones, believe it or not, like Syria, um, Northern Ireland. Um, so if we want to look at, at some numbers, which I think is very important to understand the scope of this problem. So in, in the EU, and these are, I've, I've cited all my, my uh, statistics here, and this presentation can be made available. So in the EU, fake spirits cost the industry in direct sales the equivalent of $3.18 billion a year. Legitimate sales are reduced by about 7%. Um, this results in the loss of over 7,000 jobs annually in the EU only. And governments lose $2.6 billion. So for the last 20 years, I've been bitching about wine fraud and nobody seems to care. So the way that I now package it is about taxes. If you want to know why your schools are underfunded, blame a fraudster. When you hit a pothole, blame a fraudster. I'll explain that a little bit more. So let's look at the financial impact or the potential uh, financial impact of this on the United States. Um, if we look at legal stats in the United States in 2018, um, we've got about uh, $123 billion of annual sales. Um, so total jobs, about 2.3 million. This is all legit. This generates more than $47.9 million in taxes. That's important. Um, the wine and spirits industry is responsible for 1.65% of the entire US GDP. Um, in the state of California, that's even larger which is why we have a, an FBI agent. I don't know if any of you guys know that. We have a dedicated FBI agent here in Northern California. I've been training and working with them since 2008. We've had a lot of good um, success. Um, so those are legit stats. Now what we don't have are, are any wine fraud stats for the US. So if we use the EU numbers of seven to 8% and apply that to the US stats, if we're losing 7% sales, that's, that's a loss of $8.6 billion to legitimate vendors. Tax revenues can be down by $3.8 billion per year because of the sale of illegitimate 
wines and spirits. Now I say illegitimate, not counterfeit, because counterfeit is just one aspect of illegitimate. So the scope of wine fraud and, and spirits fraud isn't just something that affects rich white guys. It's not something that only affects big collectors. It's not something that if you don't buy Lafitte, you're not going to get touched by it. You are. And you're going to get touched by it because if you're a retailer, you're spending time and money to get your license, to make sure that you're in compliance, to make sure that you're shipping correctly, right? In the state of California, the FBI cannot get the, the California uh, con uh, Liquor Board to go after unlicensed vendors. We can't get them to go after them. That's crazy. You can sell wine online in the state of California and nobody's going to go after you. They're not going to go after you because it's a misdemeanor. So if you are a licensed vendor, the government has the right to come into your location and inspect at any time. If you're not a licensed vendor, it would be trespassing. That's crazy. Um, it costs corporations a lot of money. It costs, you know, your competitors are, are suffering because you're paying all those fees and making sure that you're doing the right thing. And it costs governments billions of dollars a year. Case in point, this guy runs many different versions of his company. He's got one in New Jersey, one in Chicago, one in St. Louis, one in Napa. Registered sex offender. Not allowed to be in, in, um, in the alcohol business at all. When he was raided in, in just St. Louis a couple years ago, he did not have a license to sell wine, to import wine, to transport wine, or to store wine. He owed only the city of St. Louis over $2 million. So that's one guy, one location. Multiply that, and then ask about your schools. <clears throat> the World Health Organization states that 25% of all alcohol globally um, is illicit. It's either counterfeit, stolen, adulterated, whatever. So that's higher than my number. So I think it's important to understand the various forms of, of wine and spirits fraud. Because a lot of people think it's just counterfeit, and I'm trying to impress upon you that it's not. So we have a number of different things here. At the end of the day, they're all financial frauds, um, but they take many forms. Insurance fraud, investment scams, um, you know, counterfeits, but it's not just one simple thing. And a really big new one is theft. So one of the things that counterfeiter or that, that crooks have realized is that it's a lot easier to steal the real thing than it is to make it. Um, how many people here heard about the French laundry theft? How many people here know that that was one of 13 thefts in the Bay Area at the same time? Yeah, barely anyone. So that was a ring and it was, it was, it was an organized ring. It had sommeliers, it had insiders. Um, this is a big deal and it's happening all over the world. It's happening to restaurants, it's happening to hotels, it's happening to private um, storage facilities by the storage facility owners. It's another thing that that crook that I showed you did. Um, and it's even happening to retailers. There's one story about a major retailer in the UK. Somebody literally drove a truck through the wall, filled it up, drove away. So this is happening all over the place. Another thing that I'm seeing more and more in the marketplace is the sale of damaged wines. 
Now, when, when, and I've actually testified in court in, in um, Kansas City, Missouri. A restaurant called JJ's blew up. And the insurance company was, was uh, stating that the wines were fine to sell. They blew up in a gas fire. It was crazy flames for like 12 hours, then it snowed. And the insurance company wanted us to sell the wine. So the problem is that these things go and they get sold salvage. And the salvage guy knows that they're salvage, but then he turns around and sells them to somebody else. After Hurricane Katrina, there was a sale in San Francisco, and I went to it, and I saw a lot of local brokers there. And they bought Harlan and Screaming Eagle and Mouton and Lafitte and Jean-Louis Chauve, all sorts of great labels. And then the next day, you saw these offers floating around. No mention. And that's how you end up with bottles like this in uh, private collections. You know, I can tell that they've been through hurricanes, and, and, but, but when people buy them, remember, people don't buy wine by inspecting it anymore. They buy it because they trust someone. They trust an auctioneer. They trust a broker. They read an email. They respond to a futures offer. Nobody buys wine by picking it up. So this is what you end up with when you buy it in 2013, and before you've ever seen the wine, you have Maureen inspected in 2021. Um, other forms of fraud, bottles that don't exist. Uh, I, I, it amazes me how much wine and spirit, uh, you know, business there is on Facebook and Instagram and Craigslist. We get a call about once a month saying, I bought some Lafitte on Craigslist and the guy never sent it to me. Don't buy fucking Lafitte on Craigslist. I mean, <laughs> what are you doing? Um, insurance fraud, when people realize that they have counterfeit wine or bad wine, They'll ship it and say, oh, it got destroyed in, in transport. Um, and then, of course, we have stolen wine or wine that was illegally imported. Um, so th there are a lot of, of forms. A lot of you guys have heard about uh, John Fox at Premier Crew, who was running basically a Ponzi scheme. Um, he was one of the people that, fortunately, we were able to turn the FBI onto well before um, he went bankrupt. So by the time he went bankrupt, we had victims. We had a case that was solid against him, and that was kind of a slam dunk, not to mention the million dollars he spent on Tinder, despite being married. Um, and then there are investment fund scams. And investment fund scams are something that happen a lot more in Europe than they do in the United States. But what freaks me out investment funds is that, A, you don't know that they have the wine, and you don't know that the wine is real. And would you trust a guy with a mug like that? Holy Malala. Now, a lot of these are very recent. Like, I mean, I think this, this was a story that broke like three days ago or last week. So this stuff is happening all the time. So then we get into counterfeit bottles, which is most of my jam. This is what my company and I do. Um, and when it comes to counterfeit bottles, there are also multiple types. So you have IP infringement, Romane candy. Um, these are a lot of the kind of funny Asian you know, we think that they're funny. Pacours, Petrus just actually won a lawsuit um, on this. Winning a, a, an IP infringement lawsuit in China is near impossible, so God bless them. But to be honest, if you gave me a sriracha um, bottle and it was fake, I wouldn't know. You know, I, don't, I can't read non-Arabic you know, Arabic letters, so um, we think this is funny, but th this is actually rampant. Um, and then there's, there's adulteration. We've all heard about the, if you're in the wine industry, you've heard about the adulteration um, that happened um, in Austria 
1985. Um, that caused Austria actually to make better wine. In 1986, there was a similar situation in Italy, and that killed 15 people, but nobody ever heard of it. Um, this guy in Bordeaux uh, got in trouble for adultering wine, and this is supermarket wine. And the, in 2017, 18, and 19, one-third of the entire production of Cote de Rhone was counterfeited by the biggest bottler in the Rhone. One-third. It's the largest AOC, it's the largest producer in France. Um, now, most of that was a, you know, Cote de Rhone wine that was bottled at Chateauneuf-du-Pape and sold in grocery stores, but that's still fraud. Um, you have intentional mislabeling um, and or re-mislabeling. So here you can clearly see that this is a, 19, or a 2009 Latache, which is far more valuable than the crap vintage 2004 Latache, although it's still Latache, so how bad could it be? Um, but when they opened it, the cork said 2004. Um, here we have some Chambertan, again, that I found in New York last week, where somebody took a label off of both of these, in fact. Um, you know, the labels were taken off other bottles and put onto these bottles. I can tell because they're worn from the underside. So people are relabeling. You know, it's a, there's a lot of recycling going on. Everybody's talking about the wine industry being green. This is the bad part of the wine industry being green. Um, people like to refill bottles. This has become big business in some parts of the world. Um, unfortunately, eBay tends to sell a hell of a lot of empty bottles. Um, I wish they would stop. Uh, we can't get them to stop. I actually presented at the National State Liquor Board Controllers. It was the TTB and all the, the state liquor control guys. And I begged them. There's one tiny law that they could change that would make this illegal, but they won't. Um, so this is happening in the U.S. It's happening all over the world. In Europe, a couple of years ago, there was a, a huge scam where these guys were going around collecting bottles from hotels and restaurants and casinos, refilling them, and selling them on online auctions. Like, massive scam. And they got busted. Big, big money. Um, you know, refilling is fairly simple. Please play. This one's funny. <gasps> Can we get it to play? Oh my god, if my videos don't play, I'm gonna cry. Google, on your own, counterfeit Hennessy production China. Because that video is hilarious. It's scary, but it's hilarious. Um, it just shows how easy it is to refill bottles. So then we have recreation. And recreation is, is, is when a counterfeiter sets out to recreate a bottle that actually existed. Um, bottles like this, they use fake corks. Um, this is a case that Rudy Kurniawan definitely made. This is supposed to be a 12-bottle case. It was allegedly all from the same OWC. Within the 12 bottles, there are several different types of glass, um, multiple heights. I mean, right? Crazy. The guy bought it in 2012, never looked at it. And the vendor thought that it was appropriate to send forward. Um, here is, this is one of my faves from the Rudy Kurniawan trial, the FBI put together all the pieces that Rudy had from his home to make a bottle of 1945 Romane Conti. And there's the bottle of 1945 Romane Conti that was in evidence. Um, the recreation has gotten more uh, modern. So we've got huge changes to how counterfeits are being made. 
And then we have unicorns. I know that a lot of sommeliers like to use the term unicorn for rare bottles, but unicorns aren't rare, they're fucking mythological. Don't <laughs> exist, right? Anybody ever seen a unicorn? Nope, but I've seen Henri Jaillet bottles. So unicorn is a term that we use for bottles that are only real to the counterfeiter and the person who was duped enough to buy it. Things like a three liter or a magnum bottle of 1945 Romane Conti, never made, never made. You know, the, the, this is a 1945, probably Claude La Roche, um, Ponceau, and Ponceau made his first Claude La Roche, or Claude Saint-Denis, in 1972. So these bottles just didn't exist. Um, and very important to realize, this is not only happening to First Growth Bordeaux and Grand Cru Burgundy, um, it is happening across the board. I judge at the International Wine Challenge, and one day on my way back to my hotel, I bought a bottle of Hendrix at a, at a little grocery store, whatever the grocery store is called, Tesco, at a Tesco. I took it back to my hotel room, put it in the fridge, it froze. <laughs> right? I bought it at Tesco. Like, I didn't buy it out of a truck. So it's happening across the board. It's happening, it's in grocery stores, and it's in the three-tier market and it's in bond. We're finding it absolutely everywhere. Um, so, you know, it's happening to, to supermarket wines as well as these really, really expensive wines. None of us are um, really out of the, out of the realm of, of getting a counterfeit. Oh, can we see if this one plays? Please play. So this is, a counterfeit production line, I, I will make this available. It's um, uh, Latour Carnet, uh, or La, La Latour. It, it's, it's a Bordeaux producer, and this bottling line is in China. It's a professional bottling line. And of course, the producer never saw it. Now, counterfeits aren't new. They've been around for a long time. Um, they're the, you know, Pliny the Elder actually wrote about them uh, in, in 70 AD. Um, in modern history, we have uh, uh, Hardy Rodenstock and Rudy Kurniawan. Hardy Rodenstock's name was Meinhard Gorka. He was a music producer um, turned wine fraudster. He was very similar to Rudy Kurniawan, whose real name was Jin Wang Wang, in that um, they were both big personalities. They had big tastings. They were, they were big personalities, and they wanted their wines to, to have a mark of authenticity. They were also both total frauds. Rudy Kurniawan was created by John Capon and Acromero Condit. The publicly available documents show that Rudy was actually funded through Acker by a number of big uh, friends of, of, uh, of Acker, like million-dollar loan, million-dollar loan, million-dollar loan. You guys have all probably heard of The Seller and The Seller Two, totaling $34 million that Rudy sold in 2008, at the end of that sale, Rudy owed Acker $15,000. That's crazy. Um, Rudy is currently hanging out in, in Asia, drinking wine. This picture was taken in Singapore about two months ago. So he's out now. So what is the effect that these guys had on the market? Well, first of all, they shot prices up. Second of all, they made producers, especially European producers, realize that direct-to-market was, a direct-to-consumer was a much better and a more lucrative model for, for sales. Um, you saw a massive, you've seen a massive decline in the number of negotiants that are used. A lot of producers are now holding a, a number of, uh, a, a huge percentage of production back 
so that they can release it direct to market via auction or private, um, private placements. Um, the other thing that they did was embolden a new generation of counterfeiters. Because there have been so few uh, people caught, and even if they are caught, they really don't get in trouble. Alexander Ayugov, and that wasn't his real name either, so if anybody wants to get into counterfeiting, start working on your fake name, because apparently that's a thing. This kid was making counterfeit DRC for years. He got caught, he was arrested in Switzerland, he was extradited to France, he was found guilty, he got time served and a 150,000 euro fine. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the prices of DRC, but that's not a lot. That's a, that's a case of wine. So um, what counterfeiters have realized is that there's, even if they're caught, there's, there's just going to get a slap on the wrist. Oh, and he's not allowed to be in the wine industry anymore. He was never in the wine industry. Um, the other thing that they've realized is not to make old and rare wine. Hardy and Rudy both made old and rare wine. That's difficult. You need period glass. You need to age the paper and the capsule and the cork. If you make new wine, then you don't have to worry about that stuff. Unfortunately, the producers made it a hell of a lot easier for the counterfeiters. They moved away from plate press, which is expensive and hard, to digital printing. And they did that to include cosmetic anti-fraud, uh, micro-writing, invisible ink, things like that. Um, the, the issue is that those digital printers are not very expensive. So this is what invisible ink looks like. It's very pretty. That's micro-writing. Look at the lady's hip. Can you see that little 2005? And that's a bottle of Latour. So this is micro-writing. So they went away from this beautiful print that they used to use. They have embedded holograms, things that you can only see with UV lights. Um, and they use proprietary glass. This one should play, yes. But proprietary glass can be faked. So that's just a plastic insert that somebody put in the bottom of a punt to make it look like it was you know, Petrus glass. Um, some producers have adopted some technologies, some new technologies. QR codes, uh, proof tags or bubble tags, and NFC tags. Uh, these all are totally incomplete. Uh, everything that I've described so far is cosmetic, and it does nothing to actually truly help secure a bottle. Uh, proof tags can fail. They can also be 3D printed uh, and, and replicated. Um, these tags are horrifically ugly, these NFC tags. But the problem with both of these things is that you have to be in direct uh, contact with the bottle to use them. Nobody buys wine in direct contact with bottles anymore. You buy it online, you buy it as futures, you buy it from an auction house. You don't buy it by going like this. If you have to go like this to prove that your bottle is, is authentic, it's too late. Um, organized crime has gotten into the game. Organized crime is very well funded. Organized crime can spend 500,000 to a million dollars on a professional grade printer. And they can print the invisible ink and the microwriting. The opaqueness of the wine industry and the, uh, the, the spawn of the internet and the global market makes access to um, vendors very easy. Uh, so all that we've done is create a, a, a bigger market. Um, these guys are recreating all aspects of this single layer and or cosmetic anti-fraud. So that's counterfeit. 
That's real. Can you see the little invisible ink? That's real. That's real. That's counterfeit. Most people only know to look for invisible ink. If they look for the invisible ink, they go, oh, it must be real. So a lot of these cosmetic solutions are so secretive that the, even vendors don't really know what to look for. So they go, oh, okay, I see invisible ink, it must be real. How many people are actually gonna buy a bottle of DRC and take it back to DRC and go, is this real? And you know what, DRC's not gonna see you. They're not gonna answer you. So cosmetic solutions are only emboldening and empowering counterfeiters to make better counterfeits. Play. No. Okay, you gotta uh, Google Sasakaya wine fraud on um, YouTube. So the, the, the importance of me showing you this video, this is a, a video that was made by the Carbonieri in, um, in Italy a couple years ago. Sasakaya had a huge counterfeit um, bust. Um, and these guys had, they, got, they had a glassmaker make perfect glass. They had perfect labels with the right paper, with the right invisible ink. They had the right tissue paper to cover the bottles. They had the right OWCs to put the bottles in. They had the right bands to band the OWCs. And they had the right boxes to put those OWCs in. Massive, massive fraud. Every single aspect was correct. So, you know, the next time somebody says, don't, you know, oh, it's an OWC, it's banded, don't open it. Well, you should open it because you don't want to find out that five years later that OWC of Montrachet DRC that you didn't want to open is actually filled with Gugal Cote de Rome Blanc. Been there, seen it. Yes? Uh, I'll answer that later. Um, and I didn't. The, the Italian authorities figured this one out. So none of these, anti, these current anti-fraud solutions are good. They are not layered. They are not timeless. They're easily replicatable. Um, they're ugly. You know, if you're a first growth, you take pride in, in how beautiful your, your, your wine is, even if you're not a first growth, even if you make your wine at home. Like, you spend a lot of time on your design. You don't want some big-ass ugly tag going down the side. That's not pretty. It, it's not elegant. Um, and these are actually very important things to a lot of producers. Um, so they also offer no insight into the provenance of the bottle. And you cannot have an importance of, of authenticity without provenance. If you talk to any producer, they are just as annoyed if you drink a counterfeit bottle as if you drink a bottle that is, um, is off. If you have a cooked bottle, that's going to show just as poorly on them as a counterfeit bottle. So provenance is important. Now, obviously, I started, I started uh, Shea Consulting. By the way, it is Shea Consulting and Shea Vault. Shea is French for seller. My mother's maiden name is also Shea, and I birthed companies, not children, so it's a little homage to mom. But um, so when, when I started Shea Consulting and I started looking for an anti-fraud solution, everybody in the world sent me their, their solutions, but none of them seemed robust enough. Um, they all were cosmetic, they all were single layer, you know, they just substantiated refills, you know, they were too secretive. Um, so, you know, I wasn't very happy. Um, and, you know, the, the, biggest the biggest hurdle that we have as a wine industry is that it's totally opaque. Everybody goes, oh, well, you know, I've been buying from this guy for 20 years, you can trust me. Well, yeah, people trusted John Capon, didn't they? And they got screwed to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I don't want to trust. 
I'm a Reagan girl. I want to verify. Um, the blockchain allows us to verify both the authenticity and the provenance of a bottle. Um, so, you know, I firmly think that this is going to be something that's, that's going to be the future. Um, blockchain te technology allowed for a solution that has all the pieces that I was looking for. Layered, immutable, you can't fuck with it. Timeless, you know, if I'm looking at bottles that are 50 years old, and I know that tech is going to change. My father is one of the, in, the original designers of the integrated circuit. I learned all my four-letter words, you know, as about a third grader because he got pissed off that AMD couldn't get chips off the line before the Japanese could get them off the line in a counterfeit fashion. So I recognize that, you know, technologies are going to change, but, but the blockchain, you can't really screw with the blockchain. At some point, somebody's going to figure out how, and we'll be there to, to, to get that up. It's transferable. If I have a bottle and I sell it to you, then you sell it to this man, we can actually see that. We can see that transfer. We can see the provenance. So it's proof of both authenticity and provenance. It's independent. You don't want, I don't want Ackermerrill telling me that their bottle is, is authentic because they've screwed us. You know, I don't think a vendor should be the one, the person who's making the money from selling the bottle is not the one who should be telling you whether it's authentic or not. The authenticity aspect needs to be a third party, independent third party, who does not benefit from the sale of the bottle. Um, and most importantly, it allows information to be accessed remotely. You don't have to be in proximity of the bottle. What it can also do is give vendors and producers oversight into or insight into the movements of their bottles through the supply chain, in the primary market, and even through the secondary markets. Um, but the blockchain is one tool. The blockchain is not a solution. The blockchain is a tool that is used as part of a solution. Um, without provenance and a digital ledger, um, it's just a gimmick. People say, oh, I have a blockchain solution. It's not a solution, it's a tool. So after many, many years, we started the Shea Vault. Um, the, the Shea Vault is going to allow for better oversight, better fraud protection, risk mitigation for brands, um, and for vendors, vendors can prove that they're actually doing something valuable, that they care about their consumers. Uh, it actually allows the vendors to uh, make money with the change of ownership. Um, when the, the blockchain is changed, a licensed vendor can, um, can monetize that. We want to be able to monetize everybody in the, uh, in the value chain. Um, and buyers know they're getting the real thing. You know, I always say, if you're spending $5,000 on a $10,000 bottle, you didn't save $5,000, you wasted five. You know, if you're buying a bad bottle, you're wasting money. So what we need to be able to do is give people the power to know what they're doing. So this is what we've done. We have a proprietary chip that is tamper-proof, meaning you can't um, poke it with a, with a needle, empty it, and refill it. If it's poked, it reads damaged, and then it can't be sold. We've also created proprietary capsules through which a chip can be read. Anybody that's tech in this room is going to understand that that is game changing. You cannot read a chip through metal. So I've been working with Enoplastic, the largest capsule producer in the world, for the last six years. We have finally made a proprietary capsule that looks exactly the same, that's tin on the side, through which a chip can be read. Um, so the, the chip goes into the capsule. The capsule goes onto the bottle exactly the same it would as uh, on a regular bottling line. 
we take some images on it and we scan it on that bottling line. Bottling lines are kind of like uh, erector sets or Legos. You can just plug in a new little piece and that's what we've done. That information goes into our software. A ledger is created. So this is what the, the beta version of the secondary market caplet looks like. In the secondary market, after the bottle's gone through the bottling line, we put a short clear PVC capsule on that also has a chip and a, um, and a QR code, uh, and that gets heat shrunk on the bottle. And this is our proprietary capsule through which a chip can be read. This is game changing. Um, what consumers see is this online ledger of authenticity and provenance. It shows you a picture of the actual bottle, not a stock image, the condition of the bottle at the time of authentication and or if it's input at the producer. On the bottom, or, uh, then you have the provenance section, which scrolls if there's more provenance, and then the company that inputted it and uh, the name and the signature of the authenticator and or the company that input it. So if that was input by a producer, that would be the producer's information. In 2019, right before COVID, we sold a couple million dollars at Zaki's. Uh, all of it was, had been inputted. The Zaki's online catalog was able to show a hyperlink with the, um, uh, with the link to the online ledger, the blockchain ledger for every single bottle in the sale. Um, so the idea now is that in the secondary market, people will be able to put a hyperlink on an offer and then have people be able to go and see the ledger. If you look on the phone, this is what the ledger looks like, like if you scroll, I can show anybody that wants to see it. But it's the same thing, and you can see on the provenance section how there's a little arrow. And that's because the provenance never goes away. It just, you just add to it, right? Um, and then, you know, that little Shea Consulting symbol means that Shea Consulting inputted that bottle. One of the things about QR codes that a lot of producers like is that QR codes are good for marketing. So that is a hyperlink. So if you are a vendor and you're the one having the bottles inputted, that's a hyperlink to your um, website so that you can, uh, you know, deal with, you can interact with, with your consumer. So as you see that thing, it can scroll. The, the owner of the bottle's name can be confidential, in which case it'll just say confidential, but the actual sale information can never be um, made confidential. So I'm going to go back one. So that Shea Consulting symbol right there told you it's a hyperlink, right? And the big elephant in the room right now is NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Couple things about NFTs. Non-fungible tokens um, cannot be interchanged with any like item. They are digital assets. They only exist in the digital world. Um, they offer producer and vendor interaction with consumers. Uh, they offer users enhanced experiences. And NFTs are very fun. What NFTs are not is the blockchain. NFTs exist on the blockchain, but they are not the blockchain. Those are not interchangeable terms. Um, and NFTs are not an anti-fraud solution. They are consumer interaction and marketing and fun. Bottles of wine are fungible. So a bottle of wine or a bottle of spirit cannot be an NFT. That doesn't mean that an NFT cannot be layered on top of a bottle of wine. So the most fun thing that we now have going on um, is layering an NFT onto this Shayvault certificate so that it can be used um, in a way that can interact with, with uh, 
consumers, producers can actually interact, consumers can have an enhanced experience. So that little Shake Consulting hyperlink can actually be the hyperlink to an NFT. So we are working with a, club, a group called Club Divan, and they are uh, making individual NFTs for bottles. And what I think is so fun about this is that they're little videos. So 2020, you know, you, you buy a bottle of, of uh, 2022, you know, Ramonet, and what you have is the producer talking about the wine, showing you pictures of the vineyard. It's a video talking about the video, talking about why, you know, or it's Mouton, why they blended this way or whatever it is. If it's happening in the secondary market, the vendor can also add, you know, five seconds to the clip. Um, and then this, whoever buys the bottle has what they call a digital cork. When they open that bottle, they can share that digital cork with up to 12 people for a bottle. Those digital corks get saved in their digital wallet, and then Producers and vendors can see people's digital wallets and use that information to market to those people, to invite them to special events, to create greater user experiences. So what we've done is we've combined the authenticity and um, the, the fun and the marketing of the NFT together. Um, it's, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the human element because no technology in the world is, is going to replace us. So I would ask you all to be vigilant, get educated, remain educated. I have a website called winefraud.com, lots of information there. Um, only work with good vendors. Don't work with baddies. Don't work with people that are known to have defrauded people. Um, do not support bad actors. Give your money to good actors. Um, and speak up when bad actors appear. Um, you know, no, no tech can replace us. So please be part of the solution. Um, and that was what I thought was going to be 20 minutes, but I got more time. Thank you. Thank you.